360 degrees. High high, 360 degrees. High high, 306, 306, 360 degrees. High high. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine produced by members and graduates of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program, broadcasting from KPFA in Huchin, occupied Ohlone Territory, also known to settlers as Berkeley, California. Tonight, we continue to honor Native American Heritage Month with a special production by First Voice graduate apprentice Kendall Craco, a.k.a. Kenny C., on tonight's show, we'll hear Kendall's interview with Navajo healthcare workers fighting for the health of their native communities. That's tonight on Full Circle. I'm your host, Freewon Franklin, coming to you from downtown Antioch. This is Bay Miwok territory. Keep it locked right here to KPFA. My name is Kendall Craco, and it is my pleasure to be your host for the hour. Tonight, we have a very special show in store for you as we prepare to create space for the resilient stories and reflections of some incredible women currently serving as healthcare professionals in Navajo Nation. Our guests are all a part of the UCSF HEAL initiative, a global health fellowship and community of health professionals, which centers leadership, advocacy, and forward movements of health equity in deeply marginalized, resource-denied communities. Since before the pandemic, HEAL trainees, fellows, and partners have held an active presence in Navajo Nation, where at any given time, more than 40 HEAL fellows and alumni are working to strengthen ties between community organizations, clinics, and projects led by HEAL fellows, to bridge barriers to care and support Indigenous-led movements for health. Currently, HEAL is leveraging learnings from the pandemic to shape how health training occurs and how we think of growing Native leadership in health. Here to share their experiences serving in Navajo Nation are Dr. Adrian Begay, Christina Rivera-Carpenter, and Danae Bex. I'd like to give you all a very warm welcome. Thank you for being here with us today and sharing this space. Hello. Thanks, Kendall. So while I could go on to read each of your extensive bios and all of their accomplished detail, I would instead like to invite you all to take a couple of minutes to introduce yourselves in this moment and in your own ways. Uh, good afternoon, and thank you for allowing me this time uh, my name is Adrienne Begay, and more appropriately, I'd like to introduce myself as I was told to by my, my elders. Shia Adrienne Begay, and she, Kabayanisha, the Tachni Bashish team, Tachni Dashi, Tachni So that is who I am as a Navajo woman. Um, I am Edge of the Water Clan and born for Folded Arms people. And I am grateful to be here today. I just recently retired from the Indian Health Service after serving as a family physician and an urgent care physician for 21 years. And, but now I'm taking on um, a locum's position, um, continuing in, on the reservation uh, so I can take care of my people 
and have also started working with the HEAL initiative program as a staff member after completing a two-year fellowship with them. So thank you again for having me today. Thank you for being here. Danae, would you like to introduce yourself next? Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Danae Bex. I am an outpatient dietitian at a local Navajo Nation hospital. I'm also currently in my second year of being a site fellow with HEAL. I've been at the hospital for three years and I've enjoyed it. I enjoy working for my community. I also am involved in helping families also to garden and grow their own food. So just like Dr. Begay, I'd like to introduce myself as what I was taught in the Navajo clan system. So Gyate, my name is Danae, uh, Danae Bexianishir. So basically, I am, to translate, I am the Charcoal Streak Division from the Red Running Into the Water People Clan, and my father is Coyote Pass People Clan. So I'm very happy to be here and excited to talk about what I am passionate about. And thank you for being here. We appreciate you and appreciate your time. Christina, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you, Kendall. Hi, everyone. My name is Christina Rivera Carpenter. On my maternal side, my grandmothers are Lipan Apache and Indigenous from the state of San Luis Potosi in Mexico. On my paternal side, my grandmothers are German and Scots-Irish. That's who I am as an Indigenous woman. I am happy to be a guest here in Navajo Nation. We've lived here about 12 and a half years now. Um, so do consider this home at this time. I'm a nurse by training and recently finished my PhD with nursing and a minor in American Indian Studies and continue to work clinically as well as working with HEAL and teaching a class at the School of Sociology at the University of Arizona. So all those things are really important, but I usually in my introduction, the most important thing is I am a mom of five. Um, so, you know, balance all of those roles. Thank you. Thank you all for sharing a little bit about yourselves. Again, it is an honor to have you here today. I'd like to move now into our opening question, but first I want to just take a moment to acknowledge what an incredibly difficult time it has been and continues to be for healthcare workers in this time, especially those serving in resource denied communities like the Navajo Nation. It's been 20 months since COVID first appeared on the world stage. And since that time, the virus has been disproportionately impacting Indigenous communities in a big way. Native American mortality from COVID-19 is three times that of white Americans, and it has taken what I imagine to be a tremendous amount of resilience and collective effort to continue to respond to the critical needs of the Navajo community. That being said, I'd like to pose our first question for today. What's been most alive for you as healthcare workers serving in Navajo Nation in such a challenging time? What are the lineages and traditions you draw from to remain resilient? Danea, would you like to start? You know, uh, working as a dietitian on the reservation, one of the things is that people often forget what a dietitian is capable of. And being a dietitian from this reservation, I think it's important to recognize you know, um, the whole interdisciplinary care team. Um, and something as I'm, as I'm reflecting on these past 20 months, it's, it's definitely been hard, but at the same time, I, I feel like there have been a lot of 
strengths and things I am proud of from our community. When I look around at our people, you know, we're, we're very caring and we're really concerned about each other. You know, when, when this started coming out, um, when the pandemic hit back in March of 2020, everybody was really shocked. Um, and, uh, and it wasn't a question about if we're going to protect our elders or our young, you know, everyone was like, okay, then we're going to wear our masks. And when the vaccine comes out, we're all going to get it. At least from what I've been seeing is that, you know, everybody was concerned about each other. And we understand that we're a community and we're only as strong as our, our weakest member. So I think that's just something that's been very humbling for me. Um, and we've seen a lot of grassroots organizations as well that kind of come up out of this pandemic and um, they started providing sanitation supplies. They started supplying food and, you know, it was just really inspiring. Often we're, we're told that we lack resources, that we don't have access and to certain things. Um, and that's true. You know, we don't have certain resources like indoor plumbing and electricity and um, access to grocery stores, but we do, we are strong in community. And that's something I'm very proud about. Thank you for sharing. Dr. Begay, you have over 20 years of wisdom and work in elevating the health of your Diné community. What perspectives have you gained in community that give you resilience and strength to continue to fight for health equity for your people? Sure. I, I just have to agree with Danae and what she said about community. As Navajos, we've been taught this concept of what we call keh, which is our relationships of, among each other. And that's why the introduction in the beginning of when we're um, speaking or or we meet somebody, um, we introduce ourselves by our clans. And that does two things. One, it introduces me as to who my relatives, who my clan um, relatives are within the group that I'm with. And it also sets up the responsibility for on each side as to how I'm gonna support that person. And I think that's where we showed, just like what Danae said, that, you know, we, we're going to take care of each other. And, you know, although, like you said, our mortality rate due to COVID is, I think, something like 847 per 100,000, which is three times, you know, the Caucasian rate, um, our vaccination rates are much, much higher than other groups. And it's, you know, getting out there and making sure that we're taking care of each other, encouraging others to get the vaccine and educating others about how they can be safe. So it's that concept, but I think a lot of, you know, many other indigenous people are brought up in this manner of relationships, how important those relationships are. It's not nuclear families that we have, we have extended families um, and which was probably one of the big issues when multi-generational families lived in one group, if somebody got COVID, you know, you had grandma and grandpa maybe in the same home, it, it was difficult and the concept of isolating was hard. But, you know, we got through that portion and just like all other groups, we do have some individuals who are still not trusting of, of the vaccine. 
you know, just because of things that have been done in the past, you know, with even IHS in the past, um, there's a lot of people that do not trust the system, especially the government system. So, but, you know, but our people are resilient. I mean, all the things, if you look at our history, if you look at all the things that have happened to indigenous people, we continue to be resilient. And I think for me, part of my resilience comes from my mother. Um, and I think a lot of us feel that way. So thank you. Thank you for sharing, Dr. Begay. Christina, as you are doing the generational work of changing structural inequity, you're also anchoring into what can be done now to take care of each other and, and your patients. Would you like to offer some thoughts at this time? Um, sure, thank you. I really enjoyed listening to you, Danae, and you, Dr. Begay, and just kind of wanted to agree with many of the things that you said. You know, the past almost close to two years now has been really hard. There's been a lot of challenges, but I've also seen like a lot of strengths in, in community. We've seen the growth of like powerful mutual aid efforts, people supporting other people, and just thinking about what is mutual aid? How do we utilize this to support one another? And I think, you know, along with the challenges, there have been so many strengths. Seeing community and collective care is a strength. Um, and I, I just think that's been really, really amazing. Um, and seeing the responsibility and accountability people have to one another and taking care of one another. I remember when the vaccine first came out last spring and it was offered to elders first, I believe it was 65 and older. And seeing that morning that um, the vaccine line, people waiting in their cars was about two miles long. And just so many people like moved to tears because seeing like the care and the, the hope and you know people taking care of one another, driving grandma, driving grandpa, and just the solidarity that we've had as one another in community and as healthcare providers during this time. And I appreciated Dr. Begay's discussion about trust. Being someone who's not from this community, but is a long-term resident, you know, that's such an important thing as a healthcare provider. And so, you know, developing that trust over time so that people do trust in receiving that care as a nurse or coming to the healthcare system. So I think echoing Dr. Begay, something that I draw from a lot is from my mom and, and my grandmothers as well. And so the things that I was taught not only about being a woman, but you know, being that caregiving role, how we care for other people, how relationships are so important. Um, sometimes I say like everything is relational. And so, you know, drawing from that for caring for one another, for that reciprocity, I think has been really important. So definitely a lot of challenges, but also like highlighting a lot of strengths during this time. Thank you, Christina. And thank you everyone for sharing. Um, a little bit about where you draw your strength from and how you remain resilient. I'm curious how or in what ways you all are centering Indigenous knowledge systems as healthcare workers moving through conventional models of medicine. Um, what challenges are you facing and, and how do you remain resilient in that? Dr. Begay, would you like to begin? I think... You know, I, I, I was an administrator for the past 10 plus years when I worked. And so I had the responsibility of overseeing a very busy ambulatory clinic, which entailed doing orientation of new physicians, nurse practitioners, or physician assistants. 
And one of the things that I find is that sometimes people come to an area without having cultural knowledge, but more importantly, without having cultural humility. And so, you know, during COVID, I saw that because we were relying on a lot of volunteers, um, disaster, privileging of other people to come into the area. And so it was difficult. But one of the things that I advocated for was we needed to make sure that they knew of the people that they were taking care of. What I mentioned before, the trust of Native people to a very complex system of Indian Health Service. But I think it, it takes time to not only educate people who are coming here to care for our people, but it also takes time to talk to patients who are coming to us for care and having them trust us as healthcare providers and, and listening to them and, and saying, yes, the fears that you have are legitimate. The questions you have about our system is legitimate. Um, but right now I'm here to help you. And that's where I found things take time. And yet when you're in a time of a pandemic, when you're trying to take care of so many people in an under-resourced setting, sometimes that time just wasn't enough. And so you may have some people who, you know, maybe wouldn't take the vaccine because somebody really didn't take the time to explain to them of its safety, of its benefits. So they, they weren't included in our numbers to vaccinate. I'm going to pass it on from there. Thank you. Danae, I'd like to turn to you now. As a dietitian working in a place where food access and poverty are disproportionately contributing to illness, how do you build bridges between traditional knowledge systems and the biomedical Western model of dietetics? Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm from the community. I'm from Chinle, which is the heart of the Navajo Nation. And uh, when I was a kid, I was referred to see a dietitian. And uh, I think that experience really shone a light on how like two different worlds, like me as a 10 year old kid was from this dietitian who was not Navajo. Um, and it, it just kind of made me realize that, you know, we need people from our community or have, who have respect for our community or who are those allies that work with us, we need people like that to understand when they come into these roles, you know, it's just not to provide education, it's to build relationships and to build rapport. And so one of the things that, you know, I, I talk about with my own patients is, is talking about the importance of traditional foods, because for, for a long time, and even still, I hear providers say this, they say, stop eating whatever traditional food that they're eating. Stop eating fry bread, stop eating mutton stew, stop eating blue corn mush because it all raises your blood sugar. But what 
you know, these visitors are forgetting is that these traditional foods have sustained us for generations. And saying things like that, saying those words, it's a form of trauma. It's, it's a form of causing trauma. And that's something I take very personally because I'm from the reservation. And I don't want those providers to think people who could be my cousins, my grandmas, my grandpas, my aunts, my uncles, I don't want them to hear those words and to form this idea that their traditional foods are quote unquote bad um, because they aren't and, and we need to respect that. So it's, it's um, bridging, bridging that like traditional foods are healthy for us. They provide us nutrients, they provide us all these Good benefits for our bodies and they also feed us emotionally and spiritually because food is just not a collection of vitamins and nutrients you know as much as and, and I think that's what the western lens leads us to believe is that we just think of food in terms of its health benefits or its vitamin a vitamin b fiber but we forget that food is also our culture food is our community Food is our tie to the land. Food is is memories of sitting down and eating stew with your grandma and grandpa, you know, and everybody can relate to that. So we need to also recognize that food has that very emotional and spiritual connection as well. And, you know, I, I've been a dietitian for three years. And one of the things that, especially during this whole 20 months, one of the things that I've had to remind myself is that the reason why I show up to work, the reason why I am a dietitian, the reason why I create all these projects, it's because of my community. You know, I, I wanna make sure that they're taken care of in a way that I think is respectful to, to their lives. You know, I don't wanna go in and shame people for not eating enough apples or not eating enough spinach <laughs> because there's, there's a lot of, of other reasons other issues that lead to why they can't have these apples or spinach. There's these systemic reasons as to why they're not, they don't have access to these foods. And that's something that I also want to bring to light and, and say, you know, it's okay. It's okay that you might not be able to afford that because I don't want to shame people. So, you know, that's, that's kind of how I try to bridge that gap. And another thing I was thinking about um, recently is, you know, I, I am privileged. Um, I, I, I have to admit I am privileged. And that's a role I'm, I'm getting used to right now. Um, I'm early in my career and I, I have to realize that my position now does give me some privilege because I'm able to form policies at the hospital. I have the ears of the doc, some of the doctors um, and some of the providers and some of the interdisciplinary care team. And um, I think growing up on the res, I always thought that I didn't have a voice and I didn't, I didn't think that I had power and privilege, but um, you know, right now I'm just kind of thinking and reflecting on now that I, I am in this position of power and privilege, how can I use this in order to benefit my own community? Thank you, Janae, that was just absolutely beautiful. Um, I think we can all resonate with, uh, you know, the emotional ties that we have to the food that our mothers and grandmothers made for us and, and to be shamed in that way and to combat that shame, I think is, is 
really, really, really important work. So thank you. And thank you for such a powerful share. Christina or Dr. Begay, do you have anything to add on to this? I just want to tell Danae that was beautiful because I mean, you know, when I first got out of medical school and working with a, a different tribe, you know, it, it was, I had to change my way of thinking because I was working in a population that had a high rate of diabetes and telling them you shouldn't have this, you shouldn't have that. And the way Danae put it, that was so beautiful um, that I'm still learning. Yes, it's okay. So thank you, Danae. Thank, thank you, Danae, for, for sharing. Um, Kendall, I can try to answer the question. What a question. Um, but before that, if it's okay, I actually want to share a story that happened a few weeks ago. Um, and just to also share the impact that Danae has, not only, you know, in her important role as a dietitian, but in who she is as a person. So a few weeks ago, we were able to go over to Danae's house and help pick corn in her backyard. Um, and I took two of the kids. So I took Andreas, who was 10, and I took um, the baby who just turned one. And it was a beautiful time outside, a beautiful time together. And I could just see in my son's face and his in his engagement, it just um, like woke something up for him. And that, you know, this is the food that we eat, but there's so much more to it than that. You know, the growing, the teachings, all of these different things are so important. And just seeing him have such a beautiful time. And he got so curious and so engaged and then started asking a lot of questions. And some of these are questions that I can't answer. So I told him that he would have to ask his Molly, which is his paternal grandmother. Um, so he was so excited to go to see her and to ask her more questions and to learn more things. And I think that's um, one of the really wonderful things, you know, it comes back to relationships, it comes back to community, but to see how, how Danae does support that not only with her patients, but in, in many other ways. And then hearing him come home from seeing his grandma and the things that he shared and the teachings that he had received and, you know, the strengthening of their relationship as well from that experience that Denise so kindly offered to us. But um, thinking about indigenous knowledge systems, you know, sometimes it's really hard because there can be a lot of tensions between our biomedical model and our indigenous knowledge systems. And also like acknowledging that there's no one indigenous, you know, knowledge system, but, you know, many. And so I think um, for me as a nurse, remembering that, you know, there are going to be these tensions because we're from an indigenous standpoint, it's, I think what we could describe more of a wellness model, whereas our biomedical model can be fragmented, it can be reductionist. And so it can be really, really hard to kind of, you know, bring those two together. So there are, you know, many places of tension and, it, and I think it can be a challenge. And I think the last year and a half really highlighted some of those areas of tension that we see as healthcare practitioners. I don't know that there's any answers, um, but I think those are, those are things that we navigate, you know, probably almost daily in our work in healthcare. Yeah, I'll, I'll just have to add, you know, it is, it is frustrating to work in a hospital that lacks a lot of resources. And uh, when I come into work, I think it's it's just unfair that our hospital doesn't have resources that other hospitals off the reservation have. And, and trying to balance that with indigenous knowledge and, and um, Western care, it's, it's a fine balancing act. But, you know, I think we all try to do the best we can and um, that's all we can do. It's not fair, 
but I also remind myself that I'm, you know, working towards health equity. I'm working towards social justice. And me being in my position means that I'm able to advocate for my patients. Yeah, I, I totally agree, Danae. Um, last year, I had the um, privilege of teaching nursing. Right now, I'm teaching in the School of Sociology. And it is important, like, in the field of nursing to think about, like, our evidence-based care. Are we providing care, you know, that we know will help our patients and not harm them, things like that? But I also would always remind my, my students, we have to think evidence according to who. You know, who is present in making these decisions? You know, who has not been present, whose voices are privileged or not privileged or heard at all? And so, you know, even I think taking that, those questions with us in our practice, you know, maybe that can start a small shift within us that we can kind of, you know, have some of those small changes that cascade over time. Yeah, you're, you're so right about that. Evidence-based care, you know, I'm, I'm a strong advocate about that, but for my position, at least when I talk about nutrition, I do know that a lot of our evidence-based nutrition interventions are based on studies that weren't representative of our community. So I, I know the, the big thing now is, well, in, in the past few years is talking about the Mediterranean diet. And uh, a lot of those studies that talk about the health benefits of the Mediterranean diet uh, were based on sample sizes that they weren't indigenous. <laughs> they weren't even from communities of color. And so that's something we have to keep in mind before we start telling patients our community that, oh, you need to go on the Mediterranean diet <laughs> because it's like, uh, we don't live near an ocean. <laughs> we don't live near the sea. And uh, a lot of the uh, samples were, were from non-Indigenous communities as well. So, and there's a lot we don't know about nutrition and its interaction with our genetics um, and epigenetics. So, you know, we can't just say, oh, just because this diet worked for that community over there means it's going to work here. So we, we also have to be mindful. I'm, I have to be mindful that, of that as well. Yeah, thank you, Danae. I totally agree. And even if something may work, we also have to think about how realistic it may be here or in any local community. Um, we had a potluck this weekend and we were preparing for our potluck. And it was like, oh my goodness, three tomatoes are over $8. <laughs> um, Danae actually came through and saved us there because she brought fresh tomatoes from her garden. But I was just thinking about that. Yeah, almost $3 per tomato at our local store. And so then how realistic is it for us to tell, you know, most families that eat a certain way, or this is a, a certain diet that you should, that you should go by, if it's not actually like realistically attainable for people. Danae, I'm, I'm curious to hear more about your work encouraging folks to grow and harvest their own food, if you would be open to sharing. Sure. So I'm a dietitian by day, gardener at night <laughs> kind of deal. So and one of the things that occurred during the pandemic was we, we were talking a lot about food access and everybody was talking about how do we make sure our community has access to food. And, and I think one of the things that came out of the pandemic is recognizing the need to produce our own foods. Because I remember during the month of March and April, you went to our stores, all the shelves were gone, like all the canned foods, 
funnily enough, you know, <laughs> I went over to the produce section and like, you know, all the vegetables were still there, but, uh, but, um, you know, some of the staple Navajo foods like spam and potatoes and uh, eggs and meat, they were, they were all gone. And I think that really sparked a conversation to talk about our access to food and what we can do to increase our access. But I, I really enjoy growing my own food. I think it's very important to us. I'm still learning. I'm definitely not an expert. <laughs> Christina is very nice. She makes it sound like I'm an expert, but I'm I'm not. <laughs> so one of the things that I did during the pandemic was I partnered with a nonprofit, a local nonprofit, and I grew seedlings, vegetable seedlings, um, and we created a program um, where we gave these little gardening packs to families in the local area. And then the other thing that you know, I, I also did was I created a Facebook group for Navajo land gardeners and farmers. If you want to go look it up on Facebook <laughs> and kind of follow along and I like to post gardening videos, uh, tips and tricks, um, and then just kind of discuss what's happening in, in everybody else's gardening and what are some other events going on in the area about gardening, just to kind of get people a little motivated because a, a lot of people are intimidated by growing. And uh, I kind of get that you know, I remember I was intimidated. My very first garden, I didn't realize that seeds grow into big plants <laughs> and those seeds are really tiny. And I, I had planted them like half an inch apart. So, you know, that, that was my first experience gardening, but over time, you know, I, I learned, you know, give the plant its space, <laughs> but you know, those are the, some, some of the things I do outside of my dietitian work at the hospital is, is talk about gardening. I also write for newspaper, the Southern U newspaper about my gardening. So those are just some things I kind of like to encourage people to do. And it kind of bleeds into my own patient sessions as well. You know, if a patient is talking about their blood sugars or talking about their recent heart attack and, and they start talking about a garden, I'm like, hey, you're talking to the right dietitian here. <laughs> and our, our conversation just kind of evolves into gardening tips too. So that's just some of the things I do in, in my own community about encouraging people to grow their own food. And I'm, I'm very warmed by Christina's story about, you know, her son and creating this spark to talk to his Nolly and to his family about, about food and growing Navajo food and traditional food. So that makes me very happy. Thank you so much for sharing. I know we have a couple of organizations here in the Bay Area, the Saguarte Land Trust on rematriated land. And it seems like folks are really doing this kind of work to grow traditional foods and, and nourish their communities with, with these foods. So really, really powerful work. And thank you for sharing. We're going to take a short break here on Full Circle. More to come when we return. In the old days, by the coyote house, in the teepee, by the firelight, holding each other tight, underneath the moonlight, that's how it was in the old days. Oh, 
This is Full Circle here on KPFA 94.1 FM, and that was Randy Wood with The Old Days. I am your host for the hour, Kendall Krako, and if you're just joining us, we are in conversation with Dr. Adrian Begay, Christina Rivera Carpenter, and Danae Bax. Our guests have been sharing stories of resilience and strength as they reflect on their experiences as healthcare workers and community members serving Navajo Nation in this challenging and unique time. I'd like to move now into a forward-facing discussion on the future of Indigenous-led healthcare. I'd like to pose the question now, what do you envision for future generations of Navajo people and for the healthcare workers that support them? What needs to happen from your perspectives to achieve that future? Dr. Begay, if we could just start with you, what is the policy and systems level change you would like to see take shape for the future of your people? Forward-looking, I think from my perspective, over the past 18 months, 20 months, we've seen people working so hard from nurses to physicians, you know, our housekeepers. Um, and some of them are really, really burned out. And I think one of the biggest things that we need to work towards is recruiting our young ones to come up and be interested and be excited about being in healthcare. Um, I know we've, we just had a summit that discussed that the beginning of this week, because we're losing nurses. We have a high vacancy rate of nurses throughout the Navajo Nation. Medical providers, we've never been fully staffed. I mean, we don't have enough dentists. We don't have all around respiratory therapists. And so looking forward, we do need to recruit. But most importantly is we want to ensure that our young ones are educated because they're the ones who are going to come back home. And they're the ones who are going to, like Danae, myself, Christina, coming to our community to, to be with us. They're, they're the ones who are going to be there to stay and ensure that the health care of our Navajo people are brought to the highest level. That's one thing that I see, and that's very important. The other one is the fight for health equity. As you know, if you look at the United States appropriations benchmark, the allocation of money, when you compare the different populations and how much money is appropriated to different areas, you know, the federal benchmark for uh, people who have like myself, when I was a federal employee, our United States congressmen and senators, they get about $6,000 per capita for health care. The VA 
for our veterans, about $5,000 per capita. For Medicaid patients, maybe $4,000. And then you look at Indian Health Service, indigenous people of this country who in exchange for healthcare and education, we gave up land and a lot of our resources. We get about $2,900 per capita. The other part that's probably not seen is that federal prisoners get more per capita than do Native American people, indigenous people. So funding is something that we need to, we need to fight for. And so for me, those are my, the biggest things looking forward. And then just the infrastructure of our reservations. Just like we're, we're having the issue with internet here. I, I, you know, I was so saddened last year because a lot of our kids could not get the proper education because they did not have access to broadband. You would see kids like in these remote areas, they'd be sitting outside a McDonald's or a Taco Bell to do their schoolwork because they didn't have internet. I know at our, we have little regions within our reservation called chapter houses where they would go over and sit outside the chapter house so that they could get Wi-Fi. Or a bus driver would pick up a load of kids because they would have Wi-Fi in the bus. So the kids would sit in the buses and do their work on the buses, you know, or try to get, and sometimes the internet would go in and out. And, and now I think about how much a lot of these kids are behind now you know, compared to somebody in, you know, a major metropolitan area where their internet capabilities were going 5G. And, you know, like then I say being privileged, my, I have grandchildren that live in a, in a city. And so they had internet and so they, they were okay. But it's just the infrastructure that really needs to be addressed. We still need, we have homes out here that don't have running water, that don't have electricity. We have 13 grocery stores that cover the approximate land-based area of the state of West Virginia. So, I mean, those are, looking forward, those are the big things that need to be addressed. It seems like the infrastructure issues are, are really at the, the foundation of it, because as you said, without the infrastructure and the access to the education, how can we build those pathways for Native folks into healthcare professions without sort of those basic needs, right? That's correct. I'm curious, I know that as a senior officer at HEAL, you're leading some strategic plan goals of you know, expanding to additional domestic sites in addition to Navajo Nation and designing and, and building pathways for Native American health workers and um, Alaskan Natives to, to kind of come up in these professions. I'm, I'm just curious if you could elaborate a little bit on, on what that building looks like. Currently, the way HEAL, um, they have both rotating fellows and site fellows. The rotating fellows are the young physicians who come and will go abroad for six months and the other six months they'll come onto the Navajo reservation. HEAL has been a really great recruiting tool for some of our 
IHS facilities and our tribally run facilities on the reservation. There are other areas though who need physicians, not only on Navajo, but you know, throughout the United States, there are Indian Health Service facilities. So trying to find an area, a second domestic site in which HEAL could send out rotating fellows to those areas would be great because you have individuals who are in this program because they have a passion for health equity and social justice and to help increase the health status of indigenous people. The other portion is the site fellows. The site fellows are individuals who are already working in these facilities. They're indigenous people from that area. And so I was a site fellow. So I was working at my hospital and went through this training, the Heal Fellow Fellowship, the Global Health Fellowship. And I learned a lot. I learned a lot about advocacy. I learned a lot about leadership. I learned about the concept of health inequity and social justice. And so I can become a better advocate for my people. And that's what is needed to not only physicians, but like Danae is a dietitian. We even had one person who was a mechanical engineer uh, within the Indian Health Service area office. We have nurses, but we also had other individuals. And so we want to build the ability for to train more site fellows so that we have more advocates and more leaders within our communities who can help in this fight of health equity and social justice. And because I think we're working at this together, I'm going to ask Christina if she has anything else to add to that, because she's doing a lot of work with a lot of our fellows on the NAFO reservation. Thank you, Dr. Begay. I think one thing that may differentiate HEAL from, you know, similar type orgs is that we do have a lot of focus on building local capacity. And so centering on our site fellows, people who live and work in community. And so I think by building our capacity, that gives us the ability to, you know, influence and change our systems that we work in. And we do this in a lot of different ways. Um, we do this through professional development opportunities. I was a site fellow as well. And being a HEAL fellow is one, one thing that really helped lead me on my role to, or on my journey to get a PhD in nursing, um, opening up new opportunities, trainings and resources. Other areas I think that we support our fellows and one another is through things like peer mentorship. We have so much expertise among our fellows and our site fellows. And so sharing that expertise and learning with one another so we can like implement it in our own lives professionally, academically, and otherwise. So I think some of the real strengths of HEAL is in community and then support, you know, supporting one another. Many of our, our site fellows, we have people at all stages in their career, you know, early, mid, even late career, and we can support each other at all of those different stages to build capacity and ultimately like support, support our systems. So I like to think of it personally, kind of like a supporting health sovereignty in our communities. That's a concept that's really important to me as a nurse and to me um, as a heel, a former heel fellow. And I think it's something that, you know, is important in community, thinking about Dr. Begay working as a physician and Danae and her important role, role as a dietitian. 
Because when we think about health sovereignty, it's not one thing. It extends through all of these systems. It includes medicines, cultural practices, spirituality, plants, animals, minerals, all of these different things that influence our wellness. It's supporting agency and autonomy for our patients and our communities. And I think ultimately can like lead us to a shift where we have wellness is not defined by disease in community. And so maybe like then we can begin to think of the pursuit of wellness rather than the pursuit of health. And I think that, you know, holistic approach is what can kind of differentiate our indigenous wellness models, you know, from a strictly biomedical health model. Yeah, I, I agree with Christina and Dr. Begay completely. Um, I think we need to find more opportunities to train um, healthcare professionals who are from our community and familiar with our community. And I was just looking it up. So, you know, in, in at least from the dietitian perspective, just to blow your mind a little bit, less than 12% of all dietitians nationwide identify as a person of color. So this includes Black, American Indian, Alaska Native, Asian, Hispanic, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander. So less than 12%. And we know that a lot of the diseases that we have now nationwide, especially in communities of color, are diet-related illnesses. And so one of the things that with the dietetics profession is that, you know, we... I, I feel like we can't properly serve our community unless our healthcare professions reflect those communities we serve. I think we always have to keep that in the back of our mind when we're talking about health equity and trying to properly serve our communities is that we also need to recruit not only dietitians, but nurses and doctors, PAs, NPs who, who know the community. Um, and so that's just something that I also advocate for too, as well as is trying to figure out a way to get more dietitians who are Navajo or Native American Indian, Indigenous. I used to do some talks with high school students who are in MA programs talking about the dietetics field, because at least from what I've seen is that people just don't know what a dietitian is. And they don't know that's something that's common. I mean, that's something that is a possibility. I didn't either when I graduated high school. I didn't actually understand that you can get a medical degree in food and nutrition, and you can make a living off of talking about nutrition. I had no idea, probably until my second or third year of college. <laughs> so that's something that I wanted to highlight and, and agree wholeheartedly with Dr. Begay and Christina, too. Yeah, thank you, Danae. You know, I agree. And as someone who has kids in school from elementary school all the way to college, I think when we think about, you know, supporting our future healthcare professionals, you know, it doesn't start when people graduate from a program. You know, it doesn't start, I don't think, even when they're thinking about what program to go into or if they're going to do generals, you know, for a bachelor's degree or if they're looking at community colleges. You know, there's so many different pathways. But I think also like thinking to high school and thinking upstream from there too. So how do we support our youth and our, our children and our communities so that they're, you know, they can get that education that's so important and then also serve community. 
Thank you, Christina. Thank you, Danae. Thank you, Dr. Begay, for all of your powerful shares and just sharing your, your visions for the future with us and also a little bit about what it will take to make those futures possible. As we are unfortunately fast approaching the end of our hour for today, I'd like to ask now if anyone has any closing remarks or thoughts they would like to offer at this time. I, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for inviting us to talk about this. It's this very important subject and, and giving us a platform to, to speak about what we're passionate about and why we do the work we do. Thank you for being here and, and thank you for, for giving voice to these issues and, and to these experiences, which we do not hear in mainstream media, but are very important. Christina, I, I would like to turn to you for a moment. In our talk last week, you had said that indigenous health is global health. I'm just wondering if you could elaborate on that and, and maybe talk a little bit about why it's important for us to all belong to this struggle. Thanks, Kendall. I strong, so strongly believe that indigenous health is global health. And I think this is something that is an idea that was rooted and grew over time. Learning more about the health equity challenges that indigenous people, not only in the United States, but throughout the world face, there's a lot of commonalities and similar contexts, shared histories of colonization and the, you know, the trauma and subsequent health inequities that come from that. I think a lot of times we tend to think of global health as people in the US, as someone that gets on a plane and goes to the global south, does a short trip with someone who looks probably maybe different than them. And we forget that global health is all around us. And so I think one thing that I would hope that we could do is kind of start to challenge that notion. You know, our indigenous communities in the United States, I think I like to call it health inequities rather than health disparities. It's important, I think, the way we frame this. And so global health is all around us. And it is important that we have like solidarity in these efforts to address these health inequities. I think so many things are relational and I think wellness is relational. You know, in doing my dissertation on the topic of wellness, many of the, the women who shared with me for the dissertation study spoke about relational wellness. And if in our area, if we have family that aren't well, if we have our living world that's not well, if we have part of our community that's not well, then how can we really be well? So to me, this is again, you know, collective wellness for all of us. Beautifully said. Thank you so much, Christina. Dr. Begay, I know you're going to have to go soon. So is there anything else that you would like to add before we wrap up? I just want to say thank you and how much I appreciate the time you took with us to just allow us to express how we feel, that our experiences, but most of all, just about the resilience of ourselves as women and, and resilience as especially Indigenous women. Um, we didn't even get to the stories of probably the obstacles each one of us has faced throughout, not only during this pandemic, but even before this pandemic. But we've all been able to overcome these with the teachings that we have. And that just like Christina said, collectively as a whole, you know, we look at our climate. We are not healthy because our Mother Earth is not healthy at this point. So we need to make changes. We need to work together. We need to be with one another so that we can become towards that 
state of wellness in which our body, our mind, our spirit, our emotions are all healthy and in what we call hojo, a state of hojo. So, but again, thank you, Kendall. I appreciate this time with you. It has been an absolute honor and a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for sharing your stories with all of us here on Full Circle. Thank you, Kendall. Thank you. Thank you again to all of our guests today, Dr. Adrian Begay, Christina Rivera-Carpenter, and Danae Becks. I also want to thank the UCSF HEAL initiative for the incredible role you are playing in all of this, working to make health justice and health equity a reality for all. To learn more about HEAL and how to support healthcare workers in this time, you can visit www.healinitiative.org or check them out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at HEAL Initiative. Also, a very special thank you to co-producer Sammy Shelf, working behind the scenes as Heal Initiative's communications officer to make this show possible. The music we're going out to is Stadium Pow Wow by A Tribe Called Red featuring Black Bear. You can listen to our show again at kpfaapprentice.org, where you will find any segments you may have missed and links to all of our guests there as well. Our executive producer is Miss M. Our technical director is Free Will and Frank Sterling. And Joy Moore is our production consultant. My name is Kendall Krako, also known as Kenny C. And it has been my pleasure to be your host for the evening. You can find me on Women's Magazine Mondays at 1 p.m., where I am a regular contributor and where this show originally aired. Thank you for listening and stay tuned. La Onda Bajita is next.